Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Today, I have with me Ben Lockwin. Ben is a PhD, MBA, and MS, and he's held many executive roles for top 10 pharma companies and provided data data analytics for organizations in biotech, big pharma, hospitals, and clinics. I've had the opportunity to sit on panels with Ben, heard him speak, uh, been at conferences he's spoken at, and he's always insightful. And he brings today an innovation for us in uh, data analytics. And it's based upon a paper he wrote uh, entitled Big Data Versus Small Data, What's the Proper Prescription for You? Uh, it appears on Pharmaceutical Online. Uh, so, Ben, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. It's always a pleasure to be chatting with you. So, I guess, Ben, if you could start off by telling us uh, what what is big data? Well, now that's a loaded question. I would say that there's not one official accepted definition, and I would posit that big data really refers to data sets that consist of dozens or more of cases and variables. So what this means is that typically there's on the order of hundreds and most often thousands or millions of discrete individual data points. Um, So let me back up a little bit. So a variable is defined as an attribute or a quality that you're measuring which typically has some sorts of differences or variation, which could be interesting, maybe it's not. And a case is defined as the objects within the collection of data, which are the variables. So you would have some sort of spreadsheet or database structure where you have dozens, hundreds, or thousands of rows and columns of information. And in the cross-tabulation, you have a very large array of individual data points, and that really forms the basis uh, for what big data are. So what are some of the problems with big data? Or maybe the better question might be, what are the, some of the problems people create by utilizing big data incorrectly, Ben? Well, first and foremost, I would say that erroneous simple correlations leading to wrong conclusions are really at the forefront of what goes wrong within big data. Um, <clears throat> there's a classic example about correlations that goes uh, something like this. As ice cream sales increase, the rate of shark attacks increases sharply. So therefore, increases in ice cream sales cause shark attacks since consuming ice cream makes people tastier to sharks. (laughs) But of course, the real explanation is that that example fails to recognize the importance of time in the relationship to ice cream sales. So ice cream is sold during the summer months at a much greater rate, typically. And it's during the summer months that people are more likely to be engaged in activities involving water, being in the beach, swimming around. So the increased shark attacks are simply caused by more exposure to the risks and hazards of water-based activities and not the ice cream. So the ice cream is an incorrect proxy for uh, the seasonality component, which is something that in that simple correlation you're not measuring. Um, Well, for example, it could also be that this is the most listened to podcast in the entire innovation series, and that's either because of the topic or the speaker, which we would like to believe, of course, uh, or it's because the day of the week that it falls on when this is broadcast, or that its release date coincides with when people tended to be less busy with work or family engagements. And those are extrinsic factors that are very hard to divine out of big data sets. So you're measuring lots of things typically within big data, but not all that other stuff about uh, potentially, you know, how many of the listeners have 
family members under a certain age range or what day of the week did it broadcast or what times. Um, so it becomes very easy to make fundamental attribution errors, which is saying that the reason that this is such a popular podcast is due to some simple correlation, when in all actuality it was a variety of other multifactorial issues. Um, it, it's Using big data also, the, the, the problem is it makes it easier for people to draw erroneous conclusions and mismanage their attributions of things they see in everyday life. So, you know, beyond the ice cream and shark attacks, you may have heard that the full moon causes changes in people's behavior, and it's often reported that there are more instances showing up in emergency rooms on nights of full moons. But largely the data shows that that's untrue, um, and, and crime rate, criminality, um, accidents and incidents on job sites. There was some research out of Saskatchewan that took a look at this specifically uh, for about a four-year period of all incidents and phases of the moon and seasonality. And... Um, it, it, it was largely untrue that phase of the moon has nothing to do with um, anything I mentioned, either crime rates or injuries, accidents, crazy behaviors. But it just seems like it should be true for so many reasons. So that kind of brings us into the small data realm because it seems to resonate and to make sense. And it seems easy that something like the shark attacks or the phases of the moon and people's behavior, it's easy to wrap one's mind around, but in fact, it's false. Um, and really it all ties back to hypothesis testing and statistics. So that's proving a fact versus falsifying its alternative. So we can never really prove a fact to be true. The only thing we can do in science is falsify uh, its alternative. So for example, which we can come back to later at the end as well, but you know, the presumption of innocence should instead be one that is uh, not guilty until proven otherwise, rather than presumed innocent. Or even better, not guilty until that null hypothesis is falsified, because there's never enough evidence to prove innocence, because it only takes one piece of future evidence to falsify that and therefore disprove a state of innocence. So instead, what we're doing is looking to see if there are enough data to reasonably reject guilt. And big data, in many cases, uh, is not directly causal. Um, so we have lots and lots and lots of correlations. And in the article, I talk about how it's very easy to find fake correlations with huge data sets and some of the reasons why. Um, and those correlations certainly do exist. It does not necessarily mean, though, that they're causal, that one thing caused another to happen, whether it be um, increases in revenue caused by something in the data set or increase in production losses or defects due to something in the data set. It may just be correlations. But of course, you know, on the flip side of big data, it's often better to have some of these correlations, even if some are false, rather than not knowing anything at all. So one of the things I found most interesting, Ben, was uh, your discussion around big data, uh, sports, winning streaks, and the hot hand fallacy. So here in Houston, we are having having a a uh, flowering in the golden age of Houston sports teams. Uh, we have a World Series winner that we're currently uh, celebrating, and we have a team that's leading the NBA with wins right now. So in Houston, Texas, that's about as good as it gets. Uh, but the uh, the winning streak and the hot hand are really uh, fallacies that you point out uh, come from. Uh, serial correlations that uh, really are meaningless. And so people have made these incorrect 
uh, analysis or at least conclusions. Uh, how how is it that things like that happen? That's a good question, and congratulations on the World Series win, by the way. Um, you know, thinking about why we are so quick to jump to the conclusions, I think what I would do is tie it back to something that um, a, a popular science skeptic and author uh, named Michael Shermer calls patternicity. And that's our cognitive bent as humans toward developing these quick correlations for what we see in our everyday experience. Um, it seems to be that it's an evolutionary holdover from our distant past. And, you know, one of the reasons why it may be so salient is if you hear rustling in the bushes, it's much safer in the long run to think that there's a predator nearby than just assuming it's the wind. Because in that case, to make a mistake means that you were probably felled by a predator rather than if you made a mistake on the other end and it was actually just rustling in the bushes. The only adverse outcome is that you ran when you didn't actually need to. So I think, you know, we've got it kind of hardwired in ourselves um, that we should look for these simple correlations, look for things like the hot hand. It would appear from the players, you know, whether it's hockey playoffs, baseball, football, that there's absolutely a personal belief or conviction that when the players are in playoff mode, by not shaving, they're providing an extra measure of luck to their team. So this really falls under a special case of the gambler's fallacy, where gamblers who have won a couple hands in a row, so let's say they're at the blackjack table, they think they're hot, and so they continue to invest more money and become more and more what we call pot committed. They don't want to leave the table because they think they had a hot streak. So the issue really is that every new throw of the ball in the roulette wheel or the hand at the blackjack table counts as an independent event or it should in a casino that's playing properly with enough decks, it's always in favor of the house. So whether they won on two or three previous hands has no bearing on their ability or outcome of winning the next hand. So what we have with the beard situation then is that players often won't shave their beards, and then if they happen to win one or two games, they attribute those wins to being due in part to the fact that they didn't shave. Now, of course, this is really something like prayer before a game too. So you may wonder why each team in a face-off competition prays when certainly a higher power wouldn't favor the humans from one team over another team who are both praying to him or her simultaneously. But we have to remember, too, that the teams are playing inside their own isolated social in-groups. So whatever their team rituals are, everything they do with prayer, their warm-up routines and rituals together, not shaving their beards, they associate directly with the outcome of the recent performance streaks. And that's important to note because obviously with so many playoff beards being grown, the opposing team is also probably, as we see, growing playoff beards as well. And so the playoff beards should be equally represented by the losing team as on the winning team. We have a tendency, this fundamental tendency again, as humans to remember the hits and forget the misses. So those times where it didn't seem to work out, it's easier for us to forget. And the times where it seemed to work, it was because of that beard. So, Ben, I'd now like to turn to what I thought was uh, really uh, innovation uh, that you came up with, uh, that you articulated in this paper, and it, uh, it revolves around small data. And I say it's an innovation because uh, many in the compliance field have embraced big data uh, because now they understand that they can data mine that information and perhaps gain insights but what you talk about, I think, is uh, explaining how small data is different 
and that if you wed small data to big data, you can actually have a much much more robust set of insights that you can test and put into your risk management process. So could you maybe walk us through what is small data, uh, how do you develop it, and how can you use it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Small data, I would generally refer to as data that are small enough for human comprehension. So either in a volume that's not thousands or millions of cases and variables, um, something that seems like you can wrap your hands around it, and in a format that makes it accessible, allegedly more informative and actionable. Now, interestingly, I think one of the logical pitfalls between the big, the big data world and the small data world is that it's said that big data is about finding correlations, which I already talked about, and that's true. And you have to really then understand which correlations are causal. But the flip side is that they say small data is about finding causation. But the problem, of course, like I mentioned earlier, is that identifying causality by using even smaller data sets is tremendously risky. So small data uh, formally defined, well, there was a definition proposed by Alan Bond, and he was formally evacuated. And, And his definition of small data is, let me read it here, small data connects people with timely, meaningful insights organized and packaged often visually to be accessible, understandable, and actionable for everyday tasks. So there are many examples in the small data world, like the fact that post-it notes likely came from just looking at how people were using notes, and that little piece of small data came uh, to to the forefront and allowed engineers to say, hey, let's try this as as a potential innovation. Or there's an example with Google's new sidewalks between its campus buildings. And before Google decided to put in uh, formal sidewalks and uh, describe for people where they would be walking, they wanted to see where the foot traffic naturally went. And then what they did was essentially uh, paved over sidewalk from where the natural, kind of where the swarm intelligence had determined the best ways to get between buildings were. And I mean, that starts to get thousands and thousands of behavior patterns that are being accrued. So that's almost big data. But the idea is that's something that you can reasonably wrap your your arms around and uh, say, it seems that this is interestingly correlated or potentially causal. Um, There's another example, which is the eponymous nature of Jeeps. I used to have a four-door Jeep Wrangler as one of my cars. And I got pulled over on the highway one day. And the officer said, hey, sit tight in your Jeep after he had my license and registration. Now, the interesting part about that was he didn't say sit tight in your vehicle because, after all, it was a Jeep. So it's small data that you can wrap your mind around. So the Jeep being somewhat of an eponymous brand, there are all these similar car brands that have a lot of Me Too vehicles, and they get lumped together in the big data way of saying vehicles. So, you know, stay in your vehicle. But for whatever reason, you know, there's a certain uh, branding cachet that comes with, um, let's say, the, the first waves of the iPhones and the iPads. And, you know, Jeep is an automotive brand and Kleenex and Band-Aids. The eponymity of these where the company would really love to have people rattle off a brand name rather than just talk about a class or category and say vehicles. So it's the small data appeal of something like that that makes it feel like its own social in-group, which is mentally manageable. Um, There's an example I like to use, too, when talking about small data, and that's that the observable universe is about 46 billion light years across. And 
that converts to about four times 10 to the 20 centimeters. And when you put it in those terms, it's fairly common for people to say, hey, I know what a centimeter is. And the universe is about four times 10 to the 28th of those across. Got it. But the issue is they don't got it. Nobody has the cognitive horsepower of capably processing the magnitude of spatial distances that four times 10 to the 28th centimeters represents. So what we tend to do is reduce it into a heuristic, which is a simple data term, and it gives us false confidence. So there's always, of course, that risk on the small data side of things that we've done some focus groups or that we've looked at, let's say, the, the behavior patterns of individuals within an organization or within certain functional areas. We've seen how certain work processes work, and we have a very manageably sized collection of data. The question then is, how causal is that? And should we or can we create actionable insights out of that? Or do we just not know enough? And so that's sort of two sides of the same coin, which is the big data coin face, which is we have probably much more data and evidence than we can ever actually manage or understand, which drives false correlative thinking. Or the small data side of that coin where we have potentially underpowered analyses and we don't exactly know where to go next. And it becomes very much easier to make a decision error because we think we're, we should be confident in the answer, but we really can't be. So, Ben, uh, what I thought was really interesting was uh, you gave actually, you called it a tip and uh, in your article. And you said where there are enormous data sets with very large numbers of cases and variables, big data can help draw out inferences that would be lost amid a sea of noise. However, caveat calcular, if you're using big data to find conclusions and answers, you're creating very many more false signals than the real ones. And what uh, I understood from your paper was that the by utilizing a small data analysis, you can weed out or at least lessen these uh, false signals if you wed those two in a proper analysis. Uh, is that really what uh, you were trying to drive home? Or if not, were you taking it in a different direction? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of good reasons to use big data. And of course, there are drawbacks. And then the flip side of that is there are good reasons to consider small data being much more useful than we ever really thought before. Um, and there have even been papers written about how small data is the new big data and small data is going to spell the end of big data, which isn't the case. But it's interesting because you're trying to find what the truth is amidst potentially almost incalculable numbers of cases and variables in your big data. But when you do wed that, as you say eloquently, to what the small data side of the story is, you can start to try to try to divine the forest for the trees, see what actually in there is signal rather than noise, and uh, really go after what matters and not just chase a lot of things that seem to show signal but are really not at all something that you would want to try to fix or change or work on uh, for the benefit of your organization. I think, you know, the, in, in that section of the paper, uh, you know, I also talk about if you don't have an a priori hypothesis, you're not doing real science. So instead of just looking at the data blindly and saying there must be a signal in this data, uh, there has to be a story in here, let's run the numbers and see what comes out, that's really not 
the best way to go about uh, approaching the scientific method. You would want to limit the number of false positive correlations that you find due to randomness. And like I said before, the more and more points of data you have, that's almost guaranteed to happen by chance if you're looking at a big enough set of data. So really what you want to do is say, we think the following is happening, or we think the following is true within our practices or our organization. Then what you do, that's your a priori hypothesis. That's the hypothesis you generate before you're going to do any looking at the data or doing any work. From that point, you would say, now what can we understand from our big and small data to say whether or not that hypothesis is true or do we reject that hypothesis outright? So, Ben, this has been a fascinating exploration of one of uh, your innovative insights into the use of big data versus small data. And I hope that we can continue this conversation. I hope this podcast really allows people like yourself, who truly are innovators, to come on and, and talk to us about some of these things that we can utilize in the everyday compliance practice. So I want to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.